This is Trading Views from the Need to Know podcast with the Wilson Center. We want to tell you the story of trade beyond the headlines. This is what you need to know about trade today, from the local to the global. Yesterday we saw the sight of an old world dying, a new one being born in hope and a spirit of peace. Peoples who for a decade were caught in the cycle of war and frustration chose hope over fear and took a great risk to make the future better. Today we turn to face the challenge of our own hemisphere, our own country, our own economic fortunes. In a few moments I will sign three agreements that will complete our negotiations with Mexico and Canada to create a North American Free Trade Agreement. It's my great honor to announce that we have successfully completed negotiations on a brand new deal to terminate and replace NAFTA and the NAFTA trade agreements with an incredible new U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement called USMCA. It sort of just works. MCA. Welcome back to the show. In our last episode, we learned several things. If you haven't listened to that episode, I suggest that you go back and take a listen because it builds the foundation of what we will discuss in this episode. NAFTA and its successor, the USMCA. After World War II, there was a general effort to lower trade barriers and tariffs and to create a more open global marketplace. As the Bretton Woods system matured, the global agreement on tariffs and trade grew into the World Trade Organization, where standards could be set and disputes adjudicated. By the 1980s, multilateral efforts began to give way to bilateral efforts, with the U.S. entering into direct trade agreements with Israel and Canada. For decades, really, the U.S. approach to trade was all at the multilateral level. So it was about building, at that time it was called the GATT, the Global Agreement on Trade and Tariffs. Now it's called the WTO, the, the World Trade Organization. That's Chris Wilson, the Deputy Director of the Mexico Institute at the Woodrow Wilson Center. And wouldn't you know it? He knows a thing or two about NAFTA. But that was really about getting a lot of countries, all the countries essentially around the world, to collectively decide to lower their barriers of trade so that we could all become more productive, more efficient, and have economic growth. Um, that you know continued to play out for a long time. But as that became more and more challenging to, to advance, uh, countries became more and more incentivized to have bilateral free trade agreements and then sort of these regional trade agreements like NAFTA was. So, you know, the United States had only negotiated free trade agreements with Israel and Canada before we'd entered into these negotiations with NAFTA. So NAFTA is a sort of generation one trade agreement. Uh, and that's why a lot of things now, as we're talking about the USMCA, the, the renegotiated NAFTA, they've needed to be updated because uh, this is, you know, 20 some years later. Something else was going on in the 90s that opened things up on free trade. Remember how in the last episode the ground really shifted in the aftermath of World War II? Well, the fall of the Soviet Union was another shift. Before 1991, the world was divided into two camps, centered around the USSR and the USA. In fact, when you hear Reagan talk about free trade in the 1980s, he makes a distinction that it's really just fair trade among our friends. We should take a moment to recognize that one of the key factors behind our nation's great prosperity is the open trade policy that allows the American people to freely exchange goods and services with free people around the world. The disintegration of the Soviet Union opened up even more options on trade for the U.S., and other countries were looking to realign their trade practices as well. NAFTA was also 
sort of born out of the context of the fall of the Soviet Union. I uh, think that in particular, if you look at uh, President Salinas in Mexico, the way he was thinking about it, he saw that the world was becoming regionalized at a, at a pretty early, he was sort of visionary in his ability to see that. But he saw that, you know, with the fall of Berlin Wall, Europe was coming together as a block. Uh, he saw the potential for East Asia to be growing together as a block, something that took a long time to occur, but now production chains crisscross Asia. Uh, and he decided that he needed to be a part of a block also, that Mexico needed to join North America as part of an economic region if it was to be successful in attracting the investment to Mexico to make the country grow and become modernized and more competitive. Uh, and then from the, from the U.S. perspective, you know, it was about changing a relationship with a neighbor that had been contentious for decades. You know, the, the U.S. relationship with Mexico throughout the Cold War era was both close and, and sort of on friendly terms, but also full of conflict and suspicion and concerns that Mexico might not always be there as a sort of partner for the United States uh, in the context of geostrategy at the time. And so this was a, an opportunity to fully bring Mexico into uh, alliance and partnership with the United States and beginning that on the economic side, but certainly provided a platform to continue that development of a partnership with Mexico. NAFTA not only started to bring together the North American continent as a trading block, but it also made trade agreements become more than just trade agreements. It wasn't just about goods and services and tariffs anymore. You started to hear about labor standards, environmental standards, wages. Much larger issues started getting wrapped up in trade policy. So all of those things, which which had been on the fringes and, and little bits and pieces parts of trade debates previously, became front and center. Uh, and it actually, you know, NAFTA was negotiated by the first Bush administration, but it was the Clinton administration that ultimately worked with Congress to get it passed. And to do that, to have a Democratic president come in and support the agreement, they needed to negotiate side agreements, uh, which were on labor and on the environment. Now those things are standard, you know, parts of U.S. trade agreements with any country. We now have chapters on labor and the environment. The USMCA will put those into NAFTA, uh, but every trade agreement we negotiate now includes those things. At the time, that was really sort of innovative, but also scary to trade policy people because you're bringing these contentious domestic political issues into this economic sphere uh, that was you know, previously sort of untouched by them. Uh, but it's just life now. Uh, it's just the way that trade policy now works. This all seems pretty reasonably understood, hindsight being what it is, 2020. While it was being developed, NAFTA had some contentious issues. And of course, after NAFTA was implemented, there were a lot of issues that started to come up, such as manufacturers moving to Mexico or overseas, truckers who were upset about standards that allowed Mexican trucking into the United States, NAFTA was, and, and this integration with Mexico was the first time the United States had a free trade agreement with a developing economy. And that really changed the nature of the debate around trade in the United States. It was the first time that there was serious opposition to uh, to a trade agreement in particular, uh, but it brought into play issues of labor rights in Mexico. So there was concerns that, you know, companies, U.S. companies would move to Mexico basically so they could exploit workers uh, who didn't have the same protections that were available here, didn't have the same access to organize and unionize that they have here. 
Uh, it brought up issues of environmental concern. Uh, would companies move to Mexico because they had, you know, less stringent environment environmental regulations, so they could, you know, pollute as much as they wanted to and not have to pay the money that it takes to invest in uh, safer, cleaner ways of production? Uh, and then, of, of course, it brought up, you know, the, the sort of the famous lines uh, from Ross Perot: "A giant sucking, sucking sound going south of jobs to Mexico." I mean, that was just about wages. Uh, saying that, you know, why would you integrate with a country that has lower wages than you, uh, which would incentivize companies to leave your country and go chase those lower wages? Uh These concerns were not allayed with the implementation of NAFTA. But many economists have said that overall, the idea of creating this agreement among North American countries was an economic benefit taking advantage of strengths in each economy and streamlining regulations. A lot of the uh, kind of discussion of this particular um this new USMCA agreement um, is that basically, uh, especially in the automotive area, we lost a lot of jobs. That's Jim Dickmeyer, the acting director of the Canada Institute at the Wilson Center. Um, some some economists would say, well, we saved a bunch of jobs by integrating these three countries with all of their um, specific individual um, advantages. In Mexico, it was a labor cost to some degree. U.S. and Canada, we were already well integrated. Um, a car sometimes passes that north border six, seven times before it's finally uh, assembled. Chassis starts, and then they put in transmission, etc. Um, and that was increasingly happening with Mexico being integrated in the same way. Um, and that kept North American automobile manufacturing in North America, I believe. Um, and, and more importantly, economists that have studied this more deeply believe that that manufacturing could have gone off to other platforms in either in Asia, uh, in even in Europe, um, and it stayed here. So uh, simple things when you think about, you know, uh, something simple as the, um, the uh, health requirements for a box of Cheerios, for the formula for Cheerios. There's a different set of requirements for Cheerios in Canada than there are for the Cheerios in the United States. If you are a manufacturer of Cheerios, you kind of wonder, well, the Canadians seem to be pretty safe with their formula. The Americans seem to be pretty safe with their formula. Why can't we agree to have one formula? Um, this extends on into, imagine with auto manufacturers, because they're across all the platforms, seatbelts. Um, why can't we have one kind of common uh, area? So there are little details that add up to quite a bit in terms of nicking away at your competitiveness. As you think about a North American car competing with the rest of the world, which I think is really important that we have that vision when we're looking at North America. But many areas of the United States felt like they lost jobs because of NAFTA and they never came back. Again, here's Chris Wilson. Yeah, NAFTA may have accelerated some of those changes in terms of the, you know, jobs being created in high-skilled industries in the U.S., jobs being lost in uh, sort of lower middle-skill manufacturing industries in the U.S. And then China came along and joins the WTO in uh, 2000, 2001, uh, you know, and that is just like another earthquake there. I mean, that's really much bigger than integration with Mexico, uh, but it just continues that trend uh, of, of trade and globalization complementing technological change and really creating a lot of great economic impacts, but some targeted specific economic losses as well. And causing a lot of people to feel disaffected because they didn't feel like they were being taken into consideration as those policies were made. 
economists were underestimating in, in quantitative terms the impact of these policies. Uh, you know, I think businesses thought that they could just pursue a globalization-focused strategy without taking a lot of that into concern. Policymakers weren't up to the challenge of creating policies to uh, find new jobs and, and grow new industries in some of these hard-hit communities. And, and people were right to feel that they had been left behind. And it's it's totally understandable that that changed, uh, changed sort of politics in the United States around trade and, and created some real new challenges. All of this disaffection was not lost on politicians. Many presidential and congressional candidates would address the challenges in the economy that their constituents attributed to NAFTA. But in 2016... Donald Trump made renegotiating trade deals a centerpiece of his campaign, a message that resonated in many of those areas that had seen job losses. And you will see devastation where manufacturing is down 30, 40, sometimes 50 percent. NAFTA is the worst trade deal maybe ever signed anywhere, but certainly ever signed. In President this Trump now, brought something different to the table. He was absolutely willing, or at least he said he was absolutely willing to scrap NAFTA entirely. Here's Jim Dickmeyer again. They certainly were very concerned, as were the Mexicans, as were many uh, people in U.S. industry, of not having a NAFTA, of NAFTA going away and nothing replacing it. And that was certainly a, uh, a, a statement that the president uh, put out at some point. I'll was, I was just end the, end the agreement. Um, because NAFTA really does – I trade – like all trade agreements, they give a certain structure and, and assurance – and then you build on that. It's like kind of the framework of a house. They, it provides that. And then you can add the windows and the siding and all that kind of stuff. The industry can come in. But they have an assurance that the structure is going to remain firm. And that's what trade agreements do. And so you get rid of it. Um, and all of a sudden, 25 years of kind of understanding and, 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 and um, decisions, business decisions made on the fact that that exists – go away you're going straight so everybody wanted of, of those and canada as a country mexico as a country pretty broadly understood their economic well-being um was tied to uh, a structured uh, um, uh, trade arrangement with the united states i mean it's you know and donald, trump knew this. and donald trump knew this and it's it, it is interesting you're right i mean um hillary clinton campaigned on the fact that you know nafta wasn't good it needed to be corrected Barack Obama had that in his campaign and so on. Yeah, it's been across all the parties. NAFTA, as you say, has been has been a nice punching bag for a lot of people. Um, but taking on a change on it is uh, didn't happen. Um, and in part because everyone said, well, it works fairly well right now. Um, if you were to change it, you had to really kind of look at a lot of things. Here's a take from Duncan Wood, the Mexico Institute director at the Wilson Center, from a Wilson Center Now interview. It seems as though President Trump's approach of disrupting, of being willing to take on the establishment, all those people who for years and years have said, we can't even open up the conversation on NAFTA because NAFTA is a four letter word in Washington and nobody wants to talk about it. He disrupted all of that. Mm -hmm. And whether you like the New Deal or you hate the New Deal, or like me, you feel like, eh, it's better in some aspects, it's worse in others. The fact is, we managed to do two things. We got a New Deal in which we have modernized many aspects of the, of the agreement. And it's no longer called NAFTA, which means that that four-letter word has now gone. So by saying, ah, we'll just forget it, he actually brought Mexico and Canada to the table. Because 25 years is a lot to undo. 
Back to Chris Wilson here. One really good figure that helps us sort of understand just how integrated we've become is that uh, there's one particular study, pretty good study, found that of finished goods of sort of, you know, once a product, not those parts materials, but the finished products, as they're imported into the United States, when it's a product imported from Mexico, on average, 40% of the content actually originated in the United States. So for every dollar of goods that we import from Mexico, 40 cents of that is supporting jobs and industry in the United States. From Canada, it's 25%. And from other countries around the world, it's a much smaller percent because it's just, you know, you can't have the same deep level of supply chain integration across the Pacific Ocean that you can across the borders of North America. It just takes too long and it's too expensive to ship goods in that way. Uh, In terms of of trade growth, we have about six times greater trade between the countries of North America today than we did before NAFTA. Uh, And we're talking in terms of, you know, jobs supported by uh, the U.S.-Mexico relationship. So what can we expect from a new U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement? Here's Duncan Wood again from the Wilson Center Now interview. So, I mean, there's the there's the good news, which is to do with the modernization aspects, incorporating new issues such as uh, e-commerce, digital trade, for example, um, intellectual property. The language for that was taken largely out of the uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership mm-hmm. Agreement, which you know Mexico and Canada are already members of, and the United States uh, stepped uh, stepped out of. Um, then you have new language that's been brought in on environment and labor protections, and that's actually now part of the, uh, the agreement, whereas before they were side agreements, and that, that's enforceable. That's positive, I would say. Um, on, the, on the not so positive, I would say that you've got the automobile sector, where you've put in place new rules on regional content and salary-based content, which are restrictive, to say the least, and will raise the cost of automobiles for the North American consumer. Yeah, so I think of the changes between NAFTA and USMCA in three buckets. And the the first one is actually not change at all, but it's that the USMCA maintains free trade, which was the cornerstone of NAFTA. And for you know businesses that have built their supply chains around free trade in North America, who depend on these integrated supply chains across borders in order to produce a good that can be competitively, competitively sold on the global market, that's actually the most important thing. That's like, you know, 90% of the importance of USMCA is that it keeps in place this basic free trade framework across North America. Um, so that's that's the first one. The, the second bucket is the modernization. Uh, and this is really where we see the economic benefits associated with USMCA. Uh, NAFTA, as I said, was negotiated some 25 years ago. It was negotiated before we had smartphones in our pockets, before we bought things on Amazon, before goods were delivered via email rather than truck, uh, before the world changed as much as it has now. And so NAFTA was in need of an update and it got one. Uh, It had changes in terms of data localization. Uh, You know, it it puts in place sort of limits on rules saying that data has to be stored in this country instead of that country instead of that country. Uh, It made some changes to facilitate trade along the border, uh, especially for small shipments. So a lot of what e-commerce does, sort of FedEx or UPS type shipments. Uh, have greater access to Canada and Mexico. They don't have to go through full customs clearance procedures if they're underneath a certain value. Uh, And that value is raised under the USMCA. Puts in place sort of new rules around advanced pharmaceutical drugs, 
uh, other areas like that. You know, I mean, these are the, the areas that were actually, generally speaking, not particularly contentious in terms of the negotiations because they benefit all three countries. Um, and of course, there's, you know, every country has a, a slightly different perspective on each of these issues. Uh, but since they provide benefits for all three of them, they could come to a pretty strong agreement. They could also bring a lot of that language from the negotiations and Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, so that's, and, and importantly, this is when we look at the economic impact studies of the USMCA. There's sort of two big ones that have been done. One was done by the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. Uh, and that found overall a, a sort of net zero impact of switching from NAFTA to USMCA. So it's basically a rounding error, uh, and it's very hard to calculate, but there's essentially no impact. Uh, the the US ITC, the International Trade Commission, did a more in-depth study on the impact to the US economy in particular and found that there's a 0.35% of GDP positive impact associated with it. So there'd be, you know, a little bit more GDP growth in the United States if we passed the USMCA. Importantly, within their study, they find that this modernization portion uh, of things, that's where all the gains come from. And then the third bucket is the rebalancing. And they find that rebalancing is, is specifically in the auto sector is an area where we actually have some economic losses associated with switching to the USMCA. Essentially, it is raising you know, minor, but raising some trade barriers, putting them back into the equation where they weren't there before. Uh, so in the auto sector, for example, previously, a car had to be made 62.5% of it in North America to qualify for NAFTA benefits, to get the zero tariff as it was being exported from Mexico to the US or the United States to Canada, anywhere across North America. Well, now that's been increased, that threshold. So now under USMCA, 75% of a vehicle needs to be made in North America to qualify for you know fair a free trade treatment. Um, that provision is a regional provision. The, that content can be from anywhere in North America. And so it incentivizes a greater use of North American supply chains, but means that auto companies can use fewer parts from Asia, from Europe, uh, from other places. As a result of that, you know, we'll have more jobs regionally in the auto industry, but our cars and trucks made in North America will be just a little bit more expensive as a result of that. Um, a second provision is sort of layered on top of that that says, 40% of the value of a car, 45% for a truck, needs to be made by workers earning $16 an hour or higher. That's a shorthand way of saying they need to be made in the United States or Canada, not in Mexico. That will have a similar impact, but for the United States. So that makes, you know, it, and this is what the ITC study finds, is that that will grow jobs in the auto sector in the United States, but at the cost of the overall economy. So overall in the United States, we'll lose jobs, but in the auto industry, jobs will be gained. The cost of cars in the United States will go up, meaning everyone will have a little bit less money in their pockets, uh, but those in the auto industry will be doing a little better off as a result of it. So those types of provisions the ITC finds have an overall negative impact on the US economy, whereas the modernization types of changes, they provide certainty for companies that would be investing in industries that previously didn't have rules that covered North America. And you know the, the balance is positive, uh, but, you know, not that positive, right? And that's just because the changes between NAFTA and the USMCA aren't massive. So 0.35%. Keep an eye out for that. One last little bit of analysis from Jim Dickmeyer. Now, what I think really gave some um, push to the 
changes we see in here were the long negotiations over the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which President Trump decided to put aside and not, not push forward. But it was basically agreed on. And in that were chapters on e-commerce and other things, but primarily lifted and put into the USMCA. So there was a lot of good kind of work that was done by trade negotiators that in previous administrations that that became beneficial. So part of the the positive outcome here was there was material out there that had a general agreement. Both Canada and Mexico were in that TPP. Um, and so there was already general agreement on these. So it was pretty easy to kind of lift in and modernize in areas that we thought about. If you had done it before TPP, you would have had to hit all that ground just with the two partners and so on. So uh, that was an important timing element of it, I think. Um, but the fact that, that President Trump said, I want to get a better agreement um, and, and, and insisted that it be renegotiated, um, the previous administrations had not done that. And so that opened it up. And then what it did, though, it caused a good year and a half, two years of uncertainty, which has affected investment in all of our countries. Um, maybe that's ex to be expected. That's, that's the price you pay to eventually now get a better, a better agreement going forward, which I think will, once it's established and things are understood, um, it will incentivize uh, investments in all three countries not only amongst themselves, but from outside and so on. And that's, you know, that's, that's part of being competitive is you're attractive uh, for investors. As I said at the beginning of this podcast, trade is complex. It goes beyond just one industry, one trade deal. And I think as we can see with NAFTA, all of the industries and complexities combine to make a pretty potent political issue. And it makes you wonder what's going to happen 25 years from now when USMCA is reevaluated, what new things are going to be out there then? AI, self-driving cars, a difference in e-commerce. It's hard to know. I'll set a note in my calendar to update this podcast in 25 years. In the meantime, this episode was produced and edited by me, Aaron Jones. The music was also composed by me. Thank you to Chris Wilson of the Mexico Institute and Jim Dickmeyer of the Canada Institute, both at the Wilson Center, for their interviews. John Maluski, the producer of Wilson Center Now, which provided the interview with Duncan Wood. Ashley Mara for her research assistance. John Tyler and Sharona Harris for their support in the studio. Kent Hughes for editorial production. And thank you for listening.